Please remain standing for our scripture lesson. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 13. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. We're continuing in this amazing theme of good grief, godly sorrow in our lesson for today, as Elder Craig mentioned. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that grief can be good. If it couldn't be good, we'd be in big trouble in this fallen world because there's grief for everyone because every one is a sinner and sin affects everything, bringing grief. But, as per your amazing ways, you cause all things to work together for good to those who love you by grace, those called according to your purpose. We thank you. As we preach today and here, may we be filled with the Holy Spirit. And to your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if Good Grief Part 1 introduced us to this important and critically necessary step in Christian living, the idea that we have to do something with the grief that we have because of sin in our own souls, first and foremost, as we owned personal sin and guilt last Sunday, also in the world. Now, Part 2 is going to take us further in the glory and wonder and marvel of grace in Christ Jesus and the gospel and the wonders of the fellowship of the saints and the beauty of God. What we discover in the sequel here is a lot of heartfelt passion, recognizing that we're all passionate about things, especially religion. And no one is uh, exempt from that. We're all passionate. And it comes to resolution and in the sense and the state and the case of true Christians in the church, joy, great joy, even delight. All good things in life are worth fighting for. And if this means we have to go through hard trials, difficult struggles in order to achieve the victory, it's worth it. We should do it. All good things in life are worth fighting for. But the really beautiful truth about today's text is the fact that God's way works. It actually functions. Faith and repentance, true faith, true repentance, lead to the very things that everyone created in God's image inherently and without exception really wants. Everyone wants, for instance, pleasure, joy, goodness, happiness. But these are found only in Jesus Christ, received by faith, lived out by repentance or the application of godly grief leading to a salvation with no regrets. In light of all this, then, let's make it our gospel goal this Resurrection Day to be thoroughly humbled, repentant, and joyful Christians, looking together at 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 13a. The title of the sermon, Good Grief, Part 2, First the Doctrine, 
Good grief shakes us saints to the cores of our beings. The Spirit's work on us in the redeemed of the Lord who make up his church is like a mammoth spiritual earthquake that levels everything to the ground. Good grief has this effect of removing all the pretenses and all the falsehoods. And this is all very good for us as it rips off our masquerades and every religious falseness. Let us now appreciate good grief shaking us saints to the cores of our beings. First, nothing but the fear of God can do this. And I I think that's true. I've been thinking about that doctrine, the fear of God. The fear of God, the grief, good grief, godly sorrow, these go together. When this fear of God falls upon us, we get serious. But before it does, we don't get serious. We make excuses, we equivocate, we play games. But when life gets serious, when the Holy Spirit brings the weight of the law upon our consciences... Now we get serious. Godly grief leads to action. And we dispense with all superfluous nonsense and religious phoniness. Uh, Really, what else could explain the stupendous change of heart and affection that Paul relates in today's scripture lesson? You know the Corinthians well enough. We did an entire series on 1 Corinthians. We're in the 7th chapter of 2 Corinthians. You know, something happened here. The fear of God did it. But dears, the fear of God on its own would simply overwhelm us and crush us and drive us to despair and to desperation. The fear of God without the grace of Jesus is a terrible thing for us. But thankfully, the fear of God in Christ Jesus shepherds us into a sweeter consolation and a greater reality than even the fear of God. And let's look at that now. Good grief shakes us saints to the cores of our beings. Nothing but the fear of God can do this. And we run to Christ for refuge. Now I'm using this biblical imagery of an earthquake here being put forth in our doctrinal section this morning. And I especially like the account of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 who is watching the jail. He's the jailhouse keeper. He's got Paul and Silas in there. And just like you today came to church and you heard the call to worship read, the invocation, a response of joy. Paul and Silas are jailed and chained and they're singing hymns and praises to God. And the people are wondering what's going on. And in the middle of that, great earthquake occurs. And when that happens, the desperate earthquake-shaken jailhouse keeper is about to kill himself because he thinks that the prisoners have escaped. And Roman law was that if you lose your prisoners, well, you have to give up your life for that. And encountering Paul and Silas before he takes the sword to his own heart, the jailman asks, what must I do to be saved? He's, he's knocked right to the floor here. The earthquakes happen, but bigger earthquakes happen inside. The law of God, the word of God, the gospel of God coming upon him. Paul's gospel response is, verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And later that night, he washes Paul's back, Silas's back. Paul and Silas pour water on his head. 
his wife's head, and his little children's heads. And they're all baptized into Christ, come into the church. That was a tremendous miracle. But notice here, did this jailer just sort of saunter or jog out to those guys after the earthquake occurred and he thinks all the people are leaving the prison and he's in big trouble and he may as well kill himself before it's too late? No, he sprinted to Paul and Silas and asked, what must I do to be saved? And that's what we do. We put on our running shoes and we get to Christ as fast as we possibly can. That's the only response to a proper fear of God or godly grief or good sorrow, is to run to Christ. We always, dears, as sinners, we always have, let this sink in, we always have in the church a refuge from all the storms of life. A haven, an oasis of grace, so long as we come to God on his terms of faith in Jesus, and in response to that, in natural result of that, live out repentance based out of godly grief. And as long as we don't come to God with anything in our hands as payment. Our Heavenly Father finds a contrite, broken, humble heart that looks to Christ alone to be thoroughly and absolutely irresistible. It's very much like the wonderful, beautiful story, Luke 15, the prodigal son. The father there dashes out to meet his repentant child. And that's how it is for you as you come to church with that kind of a heart. And then go throughout the week that way. Let's... Look at the text, verses 10 to 13a, 2 Corinthians 7. And behold the beautiful fruit of good grief. Good grief is like holy yeast. It grows and spreads and leavens the whole lump, as it were. In today's text, we see a lovely chain reaction of grace. And that's a beautiful thing about the kingdom of God. It can't be contained. Like this yeast keeps growing and spreading. Everything gets affected by it in a good way. Chain reaction of grace flowing from a sanctified sorrow. So with that in mind, let us taste of the beautiful fruit of good grief. First, a liberated heaven on earth, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, verse 10 was the last verse in last Sunday's scripture lessons. The first verse here, we're recapitulating it because it's such a key verse and it really is a transition that we want to get on both ends of the equation. And it's teaching us that godly grief in the regenerated church saint renders in the appropriate circumstances a renewed repentance that itself revives a salvation, i.e. a fresh experience of redemption, that leads to a life in Christ characterized by, quoting, no regret. It just plain cannot get any better than that, dears. Now, when it says no regret, it doesn't mean that we don't regret the sins we committed in the past. I mean, that's something we should do. We should regret all the sins we've ever committed. Because that makes sense, and that's God-honoring. But we don't live in any regret. The present is without regret. And the future has no prospects for regret. 
Doesn't mean we won't sin, but we live in this Christ who gives us victory over the sin, gives us repentance through godly sorrow. And now because of this, we need not have any regret. It just plain can't get any better than that. To live a life with no disgrace, no shame, no condemnation, no judgment, no damnation, no remorse, one that is full of assurance of God's favor and love in Jesus, is truly heaven on earth. The Puritans would talk about this. Heaven on earth is this assurance of God's favor of you, making your call and election sure. No regret. Again, it doesn't mean we aren't sinners, and we will sin, but we repent of it. We come back to church, and we get that absolution, that assurance. Indeed, there's when we talk about the kingdom of God being on this fallen planet, which we often do, and we even include it in our prayers, and the Bible clearly teaches that the kingdom of God is on the earth today, in the church militant, clearly, this is largely that to which we're referring When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about where the king is and the benefits of the king and the beauty of the king and the wonder of the king. And where the king is, he brings blessing. And that is that freedom, that joy, that liberation. No regret, no condemnation, no damnation, no shame. No secrets. We can look God in the face, our Father, through Jesus Christ. Behold in Him that merciful Savior and have full and free access to the throne of grace and come to Him with all of our sorrows, all of our sins, all of our struggles, all of our concerns and give them all to Him. Hold back nothing at all. But we are reminded that the opposite of heaven is hell, is it not? And does this verse 10 not also teach that worldly grief produces death? Now we're going in a little while, we're going to talk about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly grief. But those are the only two real options. And this is where our friends and family and others we know that are outside of Christ, they are living in this darkness, this shame, this disgrace, this suppression of the truth, this knowledge that they're created in the image of God and the judgment of God and the righteousness of God is a certain thing. But they're not free. They're chained. And this should drive our compassion and our desire to evangelize. The beautiful fruit of good grief, a liberated heaven on earth, and a passionately clean conscience, verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, exclamation point. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. You read that verse, and you're like, he wrote that to the Corinthians? This is an amazing text here. 
God did a marvelous work in these folks. There are at least eight dimensions of a clear conscience mentioned in this one verse 11. In one word, I'm going to give them to you. I don't expect him to write these down. But they are here. Earnestness, eagerness, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, punishment, and innocence. So what is the point of all this spirit-wrought, passionate dynamic? What's Paul getting at? I think it's justice and righteousness in Christ. To explain, godly grief so cut the Corinthian churchmen to the heart that they could no longer rest, even for a moment, till they had rectified the wrong that was done to the Apostle Paul the complicity or guilt of which they were at least partly responsible. And wow, did they ever put their hearts and hands to the good gospel plow and start digging up their hearts and exposing them to God and getting the pollution out, the sin, the pus, the corruption, confessing it, repenting of it. The Corinthians did not want to leave one spiritual stone unturned. They took out the good gospel caterpillar bulldozer and cut all the roots of their former sloth, insolence, and carelessness. They wiped it out. And they did this not only for Paul's benefit, not only for the good of the man in the congregation that had sinned in some way against Paul, some grievous way, and then repented and then got restored, not only for his good, But they also did all this heartfelt repenting for their own well-being. They could not go on any longer until they had addressed the hurt that had been inflicted on their freshly appreciated and now more beloved than ever Apostle Paul. And indeed, they took care of covenantal and spiritual business here. That's what verse 11 is telling us. It's an amazing text. The beautiful fruit of good grief, a liberated heaven on earth, a passionately clean conscience, and a miraculously loving church, verses 12 through 13a. So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, i.e. himself, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Now, this statement I'm about ready to make is pretty dramatic, but I believe it. And that is that Paul knew that the Corinthian Christians could never be right with God unless they were right with him. You ever thought about that? You know, true Christians don't have the right to oppose God's apostles and prophets and really faithful ministers for that matter. That's not a luxury we have. We don't have the prerogative, the option of that. Paul essentially says this in verse 12 in so many words. The Corinthians could not be right with God until or unless they had taken care of their wrong with God's messenger, in this case, the Apostle Paul. And then their realization of this, the godly grief leading to sorrow, leading to these eight things we just saw in verse 11, broke open the penned up dam of affection 
that now began to shower, baptize, and engulf all the players in this divine drama. The Apostle Paul, the offending, repentant, forgiven man, the Corinthians, and later, verses 13b and following, the wonderful minister Titus as well. Now it's interesting that Paul specifically mentions here in verse 12b that the main human reason he wrote the challenging and hard words that he did to the Corinthians was, and we are quoting him, in order that your, their, the Corinthians, earnestness for us, Paul and his ministerial companions, might be revealed to you, the Corinthians, in the sight of God, unquote. Isn't that amazing? That's why Paul wrote those hard words. The Corinthian churchmen had to have their spiritual eyes open to the truth that the whole redeemed church holds together as one, and therefore, for that church to properly function, it had to have repentance as well as faith toward God and Jesus Christ. And this was what they took care of. This is what they did. This is how important your Christian life is and keeping your accounts clean in Jesus, in his spirit, in his covenant, in his son, in his church. And this faith-filled repentance would be driven by and motivated by what we're calling godly, a good grief, or a godly, healthy sorrow. But there's, where does a good grief, godly, healthy sorrow, true repentance lead? To salvation, to joy, to happiness, to fulfillment, to celebration to pleasure, to love. And why? Because God has done a great work in us, his church, via faith in Christ that's communicated by the Holy Spirit as he applies the gospel to our hearts. See how much we have to be thankful for, dear saints, in Jesus. Let's do the application this morning. And be amazed at why good grief is really good for the church's forgiven sinner saints. You know, godly sorrow is particularly good for us because we're still sinners. You know, if we quit being sinners down here, which can't happen, none of this would mean very much to us, and understandably so. Good grief is good for us because we're sinner saints. We still do sin. There's the poor old devil is going to have a tough time in this new year, 2024, beating us if and as we are, by grace alone and Jesus alone, able to see even our sorrow, our grief, our hardships, our struggles, our challenges accrue to our good and betterment in Jesus and to the glory of God. So with that spirit, let us now consider why good grief is really good for the church's forgiven sinner saints. First, because... It strips away all of our pride. And if it takes godly sorrow to do this, so be it. Whatever removes pride or self-sufficiency from us is our friend. Isaiah 6.5 is referenced on your outline. Do you remember what was going on there with the 8th century B.C. great prophet Isaiah? He's doing all right. He's probably thinking he's in pretty good state with God and in chapter 6, he has this pre-incarnate Christophany appearance of Jesus Christ, and we know this from John's Gospel. It's Jesus Christ himself in his pre-incarnate state. And what does this godly man think of himself? 
in light of this vision of Christ. He is totally undone. He has no spiritual leg to stand on. He completely casts himself onto Christ, the mercies of God. He gives himself entirely. Send me, I will go, he says. I'll do whatever you want me to do, Father. And that's what happens with good grief, godly sorrow, leading to repentance and true faith, joy and no regret, a life of freedom and joy and celebration and meaning and purpose. Indeed. So it is with us. Godly grief brings us to our senses and propels us into the arms of Christ and the heart of the three members of the Holy Trinity. So, dears, as you start out 2024, first Sunday of the year, are you sad about anything today? Give yourself a few moments to think. Are you sad about anything today? If so, what is it? And then ask, is it something worthy of godly sorrow or good grief? How will you know? You say, Pastor, how may I know that? Well, you will know by answering this question, does this grief compel me to personal repentance that according to verse 10a, quote, leads to salvation without regret? Or does this grief, quote, produce death as per verse 20b? All grief ends up in one of these two destinations. We'll pursue this a little further here in a moment. So why good grief is really good for the church's forgiven sinner saints? Because it strips away all of our pride and it thrusts us, T-H-R-U-S-T-S, unalloyed into the embraces of our tender Heavenly Father. Now by unalloyed, I mean we come to our tender Heavenly Father like the prodigal son without any spiritual resources. We've wasted it all. We've spent it all. We've squandered it all. Without any righteousness of our own, without any goodness, with no claims on God, no money in our hands, no bribes, no gimmicks, no tricks, no religious fads and phoniness. We come to him honestly in Christ Jesus. The only way to the Father is through the Son, John 14:6, And the only way we come to the Son is through the convicting and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, John 16, 8, and Titus 3, 4 through 7. Now, this is how we will know if our previous question is answered in the affirmative. This is how we'll know, inevitably. The affirmative would be grief producing repentance leading to salvation without regret, or if it's answered in the negative, i.e. worldly grief producing death. Those who answer in the affirmative run, but they run directly to God through Jesus Christ without anything in between. Directly to him. Attach themselves by grace afresh and anew to Christ, having come under this godly sorrow or good grief. To his bloody atonement and his glorious resurrection. His forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, his kindness. We run to him. We don't saunter, we run. And those answering in the negative, they also run. They run away from God, directly into the arms of sin, hell, devil, the world, and death. Everybody runs. That's how we respond to grief. 
Is it good grief or is it bad grief? The good news of the gospel, even of good grief, is this. There is available to us, and not just us, all sinners, an open avenue of grace to God through Jesus Christ, so long as we come on his terms. Nothing in our hands. Faith in Christ alone. Casting ourselves upon him as our only hope. This is a wide open path, availed to us by God through faith. But there's, in this world, face it, just face it, grief is unavoidable. Ain't nobody getting out without it. Sorry about the good in English there. But bottom line, grief is unavoidable in a fallen and sinful world. But better news is this, joy and salvation is totally accessible. Totally accessible. In Christ alone and only in him, his blood, his righteousness, put your faith, your trust, your life, your person, all your concerns, all your sins, everything you are, all your grief on him. Beloved, good grief, part two, leads to the good one, Christ the Lord. Let the saints of the church be thankful for good grief. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that that good grief really led to good things here in, in the Corinthian church and in every faithful church throughout all the generations of the world. Thank you for these saints, Lord. Um, we'll take humility. We'll take repentance. We'll take good grief. We'll take no regret. We'll take no shame, no disgrace, no condemnation. We'll take the assurance of your love. But we'll take it only in Jesus, the only source of any of those blessings. And we thank you for him. In his holy name, amen.